for the rest of you, I hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon uh, notes. Uh, we have a lot to uh, um, unpack in this uh, message, but I trust it to be very uh, meaningful to you. As uh, I trust most of you know, uh, our current study is the good hand of God, uh, restoring and preserving His people. A study of the Old Testament books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These three books tell the remarkable story of how God restored and preserved Israel after God judged the nation for their sin, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, including the temple, with the people being led away into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra, and that's where we currently are, uh, is all about the first group of Jews who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon with their priority being to rebuild the temple and to reestablish the worship of God. Now, in our last lesson, uh, we saw how with great enthusiasm, uh, the people began the project of rebuilding the temple. Uh, they quickly, very quickly, laid the foundation for the temple. But then we saw that two factors came into play that stopped the work from going any further. First, the senior adults or at least those who were older, old enough to remember the, the former temple, Solomon's temple that had been destroyed, they infected the community with discouragement, with a spirit of disappointment when they realized that the new temple being rebuilt was just nothing in comparison to the old one. Right behind that internal discouragement uh, came external opposition from their enemies, which frightened them. So uh, look at the introduction in your sermon notes. Let's re read through this just to lay the foundation for this message. There is a tendency, and I think we would all admit this, once restored to God following a time of backsliding, to become so overjoyed with God's forgiveness and confident in God's presence to imagine you've reached a place where difficulties are all in the past. But, of course, you soon find otherwise, as did the Jews who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple following their captivity in Babylon. Their initial euphoria of returning to God soon evaporated from disappointment and opposition, resulting in the work on the temple being stopped, and you might want to underline this, for 16 years. For 16 years. During those 16 years, their priorities turned upside down as they ceased caring about God's kingdom and started building their own. To address their complacency and misplaced priorities, God raised up two prophets. 
Haggai and Zechariah. Through the preaching of these two men, the Jewish community repented. Repented of their neglect of God during those 16 years. They chose to return to choose God's priorities and praise God, as we're going to see, uh, they completed the work on the temple. Now today, we come to lesson five in our study. The focus is Ezra chapter five, and I've entitled this lesson, Choosing God's Priorities. Now, we need to remember the very last verse in Ezra four was simply that the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. And as I mentioned, it ceased for 16 years where they just neglected the very purpose for which God had brought them back to Jerusalem. And then look at verses 1 and 2, how the fifth chapter begins. When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Jerubbabel, remember Jerubbabel was the civil leader of the people, the son of Jeetiel and Joshua, the son of Josedak, uh, that was the high priest, arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, don't miss, it, miss the absolute simplicity, but, but powerful truth right here. Notice, Haggai and Zechariah, they did what? What's the verb? They prophesied. And of course, they're talking about speaking the word of God to the people. Well, what was the response to the people? Well, it says, Jerubbabel and Joshua, what? Arose. The answer, the answer to all discouragement and opposition in a believer's life is the bold proclamation of God's Word. And not just to present truths to be learned, to be believed and admired, but as a call to action. They prophesied and they arose, got back to the work. Stop being uh, spectators, became participants. Now, what we want to do now is, in, uh, and I trust you'll appreciate this. This just uh, wonderfully blessed my heart. Uh, we want to give an overview of what Haggai and Zechariah preached. In other words, what was their message to this people who had neglected the very reason that God had brought them back to Jerusalem? Uh, developed misplaced priorities uh, where they were not caring about God's kingdom and it was all about them. Now, let's begin with Haggai. Haggai was the older of the, uh, of the two men. Uh, he was a pretty, uh, pretty direct sort of type guy, uh, black and white, and he gave four messages to the people, four messages, and he gave those messages in the span of just four months. Uh, and you'll see there that first bullet point in your notes, Haggai's first message, which is chapter 1 of Haggai, verses 1 through 15, that's the entire first chapter, was given, and every message is dated. 
in the Bible. That message was given on August 29th, 520 B.C., 16 years after the work on the temple ceased. The heart of the message, and here you can, you can just capture it in one word. Get it down in your notes. Rebuke. That's the heart of the message. It is a stinging rebuke right as a dagger into the heart of the people. It sort of can be summed up there in verses 7 and 8. Consider your ways and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be, may be glorified, says the Lord. Now, this message had a wonderful effect on the people because notice the next statement on your, on your, in your notes. Work on the temple was resumed 23 days after Haggai's message. On September 21st, 520 B.C., that's my wife's birthday, by the way. Not that she was born in 520 B.C., but she was born in uh, September 21st. And uh, as we're going to see, the temple was completed. It took them four and a half years uh, to complete the work on the temple, and it was completed on March 12th, 515 B.C. Now, I think it's very important for us to examine in a little more detail this first message of Haggai because of the tremendous impact that it had on the people, bringing them to repentance and getting them back to where God was their first priority. So would you please take your Bibles and turn to Haggai chapter 1. Let me help you find Haggai. Go to the very last book in the Old Testament. Very last book, it's Malachi. And then the next to last book is Zechariah, and then right before Zechariah, Haggai. So just go to the very last book of the Old Testament. That last book is Malachi, the next to last is Zechariah, and then right before that, Haggai. So go to Haggai uh, chapter 1, and let's look at a little more detail, uh, this message of rebuke that he gave to the people that, uh, that just uh, convicted them to the quick and brought uh, uh, just remarkable change to their hearts and to their lives. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time is not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now pause right there for a moment. What a stunning statement made by God's people, that it was not time for the temple to be rebuilt. What more evidence did they need? I mean, earlier in our study of Ezra, we learned how God raised up Cyrus, a pagan king, the king of Persia. He raised them up to conquer, defeat the Babylonian empire where God's people were being held captive. And then God sovereignly moved in the heart of this pagan king, Cyrus, and he issued a decree allowing any Jew that wanted to to go back to their homeland, go back to Jerusalem for the express purpose of restoring the city and rebuilding the temple. He actually gave them, gave them all 
the sacred vessels of gold and silver that had been taken from the temple when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. We saw this earlier in our study. Over 5,400 vessels of gold and silver. I mean, this would have been worth a fortune, literally a fortune in our day, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And, and Cyrus gave it to the Jews to take it with them back to their homeland, to, to use them in the rebuilt temple. And not only that, Cyrus, this pagan Persian king, he financed the entire project. Everything they needed, the materials, the timber, everything he committed to finance. Add the fact that all of that, everything I just told you, was foretold by God through the prophet Isaiah even identifying Cyrus by name 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. And we looked at that in an earlier message. The point is simply this. What more could God have said or done to have indicated this is the time for my house to be rebuilt and for you to reestablish the priority of worship in your community. They had no legitimate excuse to stop the work on the temple, just like we have no excuse today not to complete the work God has given us to do. I think of Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. In face of all of this, I like how that begins. This is the J.B. Phillips translation. In face of all of this, and that all of this, put anything that you want there, discouragement, disappointment, opposition, pain, I don't care, just put whatever you want to put there. In face of all of this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not hesitate to spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, can we not trust such a God to give us with him everything else that we can need? So the issue was just their lack of trust in God. Return to Haggai 1 and now look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies desolate. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Wake up. Now, pause again right there. And notice, when Haggai rebukes the people, and this is very, very important, when he rebukes the people for not completing the work on the temple, for allowing it to stop, he says absolutely nothing about discouragement or opposition. What does he rebuke them for? You see it? Having a greater concern for their own comfort 
and increasing their standard of living than completing God's work. The discouragement and opposition, they were real, but they were not the heart of the problem. That simply exposed the real problem, self-centeredness. When the first test of adversity came, I mean, when the first hardship came upon the Jewish people, they retreated. They crumbled. They just retreated into a selfish regard for their own interest as they built for themselves, and this is the thought of that phrase, paneled houses, extravagant homes, while God's house remain desolate. By the way, let me ask you an interesting question. The Bible doesn't answer this, but I think the answer is obvious. Where do you think they got the wood to build those nice homes? Exactly right. They used the timber shipped from Lebanon to rebuild the temple, which was paid for by Cyrus, the Persian king. We, too, often rob God of what is His. We rob Him of our time. We rob Him of our talents. We rob Him of our treasure. And then, when, and then on top of it all, we complain when we struggle to make ends meet. So go to verse 6, and notice how Haggai rebukes the people for complaining about their financial struggles, which was actually God's discipline for their misplaced priorities. Look at verse 6. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough even to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, I love this, he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Notice, he repeats that. Second time he's repeated that phrase. Consider your ways. That's the heart of this message. This message of rebuke. Verse 8, go up to the mountains, Bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, Because of you, notice, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. Now, praise God, that message convicted the people. That message brought them to repent of their misplaced priorities. It just literally shattered them, broke them of their self-centeredness as they now return to God's priorities for their lives. And, oh, Lord, may you do the same in our lives today.
Look at verse 12. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Jeetiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, and would you please underline this phrase, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Would you circle, would you underline that phrase, showed reverence for the Lord? And don't miss this. What is the only true way to show reverence to the Lord? We're told right here, you have to obey the voice of the Lord. You reverence God by being not only attentive to His Word, but obeying His Word. And then look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. It's after their repentance. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Jerubbabel, the son of Jeetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, uh, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So the application is this. God is telling us today, just like he told them so many, many years ago, consider your ways. That's the message to us this morning. Consider your ways. God is saying, get your priorities right. Live, live to please me. Live to glorify me. So we each need to ask ourselves this morning, in honesty and transparency, where do I need to repent of misplaced priorities in order to choose God's priorities for my life in our church? What changes need to be made in my life. Look now at Haggai's second message, that next bullet point in your sermon notes. This is chapters 2, verses 1 through 9. This was given on October 17th, a month and a half after the work on the temple was resumed. The heart of this message is encouragement. I mean, he begins with rebuke, and it had to be rebuke because of where the people were. They needed to be brought to repentance, but now that they've repented, of their misplaced priorities, to choose God's priorities as they've re-engaged in the project of rebuilding the temple and re-establishing the priority of worship, he comes with tremendous encouragement. It's sort of summed up in verse 4 there. All you people of the land, take courage and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in this message, in this second message, and this is, this is interesting, God deals directly I mean, just head on with the mistake the people made 16 years earlier when they became disappointed, especially the senior adults, when they compared the new temple to this, or the old temple to this new temple, thinking it paled in comparison, and it just plunged them into disappointment and discouragement. I hope you still have your Bibles turned there to Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, look at verse 3. Notice, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? 
That's a direct question to those senior adults who had seen Solomon's temple. Remember, most of this 50,000 that came back, they had never lived in Jerusalem. Never. Their whole lives had been in Babylon. Most of them were born in Babylon. But there were some seniors that had been taken away into captivity. They had seen Solomon's temple, so he asked them, Who is left among you who saw this temple in his former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now, take courage, Jerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And now go down to verse 9. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And by the way, Zechariah, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it myself for you. Because uh, we need to look a little bit more at Haggai. But Zechariah addresses this very issue himself. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, this is what Zechariah says. He says, The hands of Jerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? See, that's a direct challenge to the people that had plunged into disappointment and discouragement with their expectations not being met, thinking that this new temple, again, just paled in comparison to the old. He said, who of you have despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Jerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which reigns to and fro throughout the earth. There's so much that could be said right here but let's just get down to the heart of it. God is simply saying, when it comes to his work, the issue is not size or grandeur. There's only one issue, large or small. Is God pleased? That's it. Is God pleased? Are you being faithful to what God called you to be and what God called you to do? Now look at Haggai's third message, which is, also chapter 2, uh, verses 10 through 19. This was given on December 18th, uh, three months after the work on the temple was resumed. And the heart of this message is blessing, is blessing. Haggai 2.19 sort of captures it. From this day on, I will bless you. So he first rebukes them, encourages them, and he says, hey, I'm giving you a promise. From this day forward, I'm going to bless you. Now, this is a fascinating message, and let me tell you why. God wanted to make absolutely certain that the people understood. Now, listen very carefully to this. This is so important, and it's applicable to us today. He wanted to make absolutely certain that his people understood that his blessing on them was not on the basis of their renewed efforts to rebuild the temple but on His grace and mercy alone. And He does this, and we just don't have the time to get into it, but He does this by raising two questions which are both answered in the Old Testament law. The first question He raises to them is, if a holy garment touches something, uh, can it make it holy? And the answer in the Old Testament is no. 
Just because you have something that's considered holy and it touches something else, it can't transmit that, that, that holiness. The second question is, well, how about if a person who has been declared unclean in the ceremonial law touches another person, does it make that person unclean? And the answer is yes. And his application is this. Just because you're involved in God's work, just because you're involved in a wonderful ministry, do not think that transmits to you some kind of special holiness where God is obligated to show you His favor. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Because we are all unclean, praise God, saved by God's grace, but still sinners, Everything we touch becomes unclean, and therefore we are accepted by God, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of God's grace alone. Bottom line, this is just an Old Testament version of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. It's amazing how we'll embrace that as a a verse that captures our initial conversion, but then after we're converted, we live as if our performance is what gains God's acceptance. And we abandon a grace walk where we realize it's all God's grace, it's all God's, God's mercy. Look at the fourth message and his last message, which is those last few verses of chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, this message was given on the exact same day as that third message, and the heart of this message is assurance. Look at verse 23 that sort of captures it. I will take you, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Now, let me give you a little background to help you understand this final message of Haggai. This message was spoken directly to Jerubbabel. It was spoken directly to the civil leader, the governor of the people. Jerubbabel, and we've already alluded to this in previous lessons, was a blood descendant of King David. His great-grandfather, Jerubbabel's great-grandfather, was King Jehoiakim, who was an evil man who was imprisoned by the Babylonians, led away to Babylonian as a slave in captivity, and he died in Babylon. Listen to Jeremiah 22, verses 24 and 25. This is God's uh, sort of evaluation of Jehoiakim, this, this evil man. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Jehoiakim, king of jo Judah, were a signet ring on my hand, yet I would pull you off. And I shall give you over into the land of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hands of those whom you dread. Even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. I shall hurl you. In other words, I'm going to pull you off like a signet ring, and I'm going to hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. And all that came very, very true. Now, with that background... Look at Haggai 2. If you still have your Bibles turned to Haggai, look at verses 21, 22, and 23. Speak to Jerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, 
And I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses of their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Jerubbabel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Now, folks, this prophecy is extremely significant. Because in it, what is happening is this is God's declaration, official declaration, that he was reversing his judgment and renewing his covenant promise that the Davidic line would never die out. And that one day through that Davidic line, through the family of David, would come the Messiah who would defeat and rule the kingdoms of the earth. So these are the four messages of Haggai. It begins with rebuke, the people repent, then he comes with encouragement, blessing, and assurance. Now in the little time that we have left, move to Zechariah. Zechariah, we're, we're only going to really focus on the first half of the book because it's only verse, chapters 1 through 8 where the messages deal with the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, the remainder of the book, second half of the book, uh, are prophecies and messages he gave some years after the temple uh, was rebuilt. But look at Zechariah's first message. He, he gives a message, and then he gives seven visions, and then he gives four messages in this section. Look at his first message, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And this message was given within days of Hezekiah's second message. So Hezekiah gives this message on rebuke, Encouragement, and then just right after that, here comes this message. And the heart of the message is, return to me. Zechariah 1.3, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. Return to me, that I may return to you. This message is significant. Why? Because it indicates, and listen now, God's sovereignty never negates human responsibility. God expects His people to reciprocate to his love, to trust his promises, to obey his word, and to return to him when we have backslidden. Yes, God in his sovereignty takes the initiative and praise God for that because he loves us. But we are responsible to respond to that initiative. God is not going to love for me. He's not going to trust for me. He's not going to obey for me. He's not going to return for me. That's Andy Merritt's responsibility. And God has given me every incentive, every provision to do so. If we are not walking, if, if, if I'm not walking with God right now, if you're not walking with God, I'll tell you something. The fault's not with God. Where does the fault lie? Well, you and me. Second Peter 1, he's given us all things that pertain into life and godliness. Again, what more could God say or do than what he's already said and done? <laughs> God said, return to me and I may return to you. In other words, he's indicating that the most important thing here is what? 
a relationship. That's what I'm after with you. It's not you just doing a work, just putting up a bunch of brick and mortar. But the real issue here is reestablishing the priority of worship, my relationship with you, where there's intimacy. And where you're serving me, not so much out of duty, but out of delight. In appreciation for who I am and what I've done for you. Then we come to Zechariah's seven visions. You see that in the next bullet point. This begins in uh, verse 7 of chapter 1, runs all the way through chapter 6, verse 15. These seven visions, all seven, some say there are eight, just how you look at it. uh, They were given two months after Haggai's last message, which would have been five months into the work of the temple. And, And we just don't have time to go through these different visions, but can we look at the visions and say, this seems to be the heart of the message? And I say, yes. And you see it there in your notes, God's unfailing faithfulness to Zion. In other words, this thought that you can trust God to keep his promises. You can trust God to keep his promises. Believe in him. It's captured in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord. Then you come to four messages that Zechariah gives. The next bullet point is Zechariah 7 and 8. These four messages were given two years after his visions and two years before the work on the temple was completed. So right about in the middle of the work on uh, on the temple. Uh, The heart of the messages, again, we don't have time to look at all four of these messages, but we, we can sum up the heart of them. The first thing is this, the Lord is to be the center of our lives and the reason for our actions. He's to be the center of our lives and the reason for all of our actions. And then the second thing that we see in these four messages, the sorrows of God's past judgment become the pledges of God's future blessings. Now, let's very quickly deal with that first truth, that the Lord is to be the center of our lives and the reason for our actions. You really see this very clearly in the first message. Let me give you a little background. There's a, a, a delegation of Jews that come from Bethel. And they, 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 they come uh, to the, the high priest and they have a question. Uh, and, and what you need to understand is once the Babylonians overthrew Jerusalem and the people were led into captivity, the Jews established four fasts. And they observe these fasts every year, and even still observing them today. The 10th month of the year, there was a fast, and that's when the Babylonians first started their siege of the city of Jerusalem, when they first came against the city. In the fourth month, there's a fast, because that's when the city walls were breached by the Babylonians, and the army flooded in and overthrew the city. In the fifth month, there's a fast, because that's when the temple was burned. 
Solomon's temple was burned and destroyed. And then the seventh month, there's another fast because the Jewish governor, Gedali, was assassinated. Now, the question this delegation had was, do we still need to have that fast related to the burning of the temple since the temple is now being rebuilt? So you can see why they would ask it. You know, we've been fasting because of the destruction of the temple. Now that the temple's being rebuilt, do we need to continue this fast? Well, Zechariah doesn't answer them. He takes the opportunity to drive home this truth that, wait a minute, I don't, you know, whether you fast or you don't fast, God needs to be at the center of your lives and the reason for everything that you do. In verse 4 and 5, we read, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. This is Zechariah 7, verses 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priest, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? See, from God's perspective, here's the truth. From God's perspective, more important than what we do is why we do it. And that's what's being communicated. Now, eventually, he's going to answer their question. But right now, he's driving home the fact, let's deal with the bigger issue. Why have you been fasting these past 40 years? Has it really been for me? For me? To restore your relationship with me? To establish me, or are you just going through some sort of ceremonial ritual? And we can do the same thing coming to church, going to Bible studies, or whatever it might, might be. And then the second truth that the sorrows of God's past judgment become the pledges of God's future blessings. Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 3. Listen, this is beautiful. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. We just read that earlier. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for you. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. And then in chapter 8, verses 14 and 17, for thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purpose to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. We'll have to end right there today. So we've looked at God's Word working in His people through these prophets. So, is there a way... We can sum up this message. I think if we go to the New Testament, it's summed up in a single verse, Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first. What? The kingdom of God and His right. What's that mean? Seek ye first the kingdom. Seek God's rule in your life. Be no absolute abandonment and surrender to God's person and God's will and to God's plan, and seek His righteousness for His character to be formed in you, to be displayed through you. That Christianity is meant to be something internal, not just going through a bunch of external rituals or practices. No, it's a relationship. So seek ye first the kingdom of God and His right, and what? 
and all these other things will be added to you. Whatever you need to accomplish God's plan, He'll provide. Whatever protection you need to accomplish God's, not your plans, but God's plan, He'll give you that protection. He'll give you the provision that you need, whatever it is. So I guess the challenge for all of us, consider your ways. You need to take this message and use it to really examine your heart before God. Have you drifted into misplaced priorities? And you need to repent of that. Come back to choosing God's priorities for your life to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Father, um, use this to speak to our hearts. Use this to change our hearts. What you did in the day of Ezra, do in our day through the preaching of your word. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.